Hopefully it was restful for you. Hopefully you enjoyed some good food. But really glad to be here to help uh, with launching this new series, Stories of Grace. You know, the way it is, uh, the way we're wired, you can just state something that's true. Uh, but if you wrap it in a story and you, you look at what other people have gone through or you try to see kind of what is going on in this story that draws in your, your ability to feel the truth, it has a lot more impact. That's what stories do. They have this ability to really grip us to the core. Think about your favorite stories. It might be a book or a movie or a play. Uh, our favorite stories capture our attention for different reasons. Some of them is because of the relationships in the story. Or uh, we can relate to the main characters or maybe even, you know, uh, a character that's not mainly uh, the, the focus of the story. Uh, or we might just need a laugh. You know, when you're trying to figure out which movie you're going to go see, you pick based on what you think you need or what you're motivated to, to watch. Uh, one of the most recent stories that's gripped me as I thought about this, my own um, relationship to stories in this last year was Les Miserables. That, that one gripped me. Now, it took me a while to get used to people singing instead of talking. And that's probably a reflection of my lack of sophistication. But I got past that, and the power in the story was, was amazing. It's a story about moral failure. I can identify with that. I've blown it. I've made mistakes. story about someone who stole, a thief. And it's also a story about forgiveness and redemption and a tremendous amount of hope in the restoration that comes at the end. That's the best kind of story. Those themes are epic. Uh, redemption, forgiveness, uh, moral failure we can identify. Th th those are epic. The best stories draw us in because they deal with deep felt needs that we experience. We experience these things. We go through these things. And they have the power to communicate these deep truths about life. So in this message series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some stories that I believe we can all relate to and identify with. Uh, and God intends for these stories that we're going to look at to reveal his character so we get to better know him and how to relate to him. They allow us to better understand ourselves and then to show us how to live life in light of the truth that we see in the stories from Scripture. Uh, they're very, very powerful. Stories of grace, they show people experiencing mercy instead of justice, blessing instead of uh, punishment and kindness when you might expect retribution. You might expect some payback, but there's kindness instead. So these things meet deep felt needs in all of us. And so we're digging in. In the following weeks, next week, we're going to look at the story of Judah who was a very, very crooked man, shrewd man, would take advantage of others. Uh, and he found grace, even after doing some terrible deeds, some terrible things, selling his brother into slavery, and that's the beginning of a run in which God really poured out grace to him. Then we're going to look at the story of David, 
a king who finds grace from God after misusing his power in an attempt to cover up his own sin. And then finally, the story of Jesus' birth, which is really the ultimate gift of the grace of God. So the theme that we're looking at through this series is obviously grace, unmerited, unearned favor that God just pours out to those who turn to him and, and aim to connect with him, admitting where they're at and the reality of their own mistakes. Uh, God pours out grace in this. So today, we're looking at a story um, that has some characters that we can relate with, for sure. Um, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. We're going to look at the creation story. Uh, God is the main character in this story. And actually, in every story that goes on on the face of the earth, He's the main factor in how the story turns out. But especially in this one, since he's the only one with the power to create. We're going to look at creation and what it says about God. What you find in the story of creation is that God reveals his grace from the very time of creation, from the very first moment of the existence of this planet. You can see the grace of God. So we're going to walk through uh, that story. To begin with here, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, first two verses of the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In creation, we're going to see God's fingerprint. We can see God's fingerprint that clues us into his existence and his gracious character. So I want to walk through what he made on this, the days of creation. And we're going to begin to get a sense of what he was doing trying to accomplish. The Bible goes on to explain that God spoke light into existence on the first day. He just said, let there be light. Boom, the lights turn on. That, that's amazing. But he wanted us to be able to see. So it says that he called the light day and the darkness night. Second day, he created the earth's atmosphere. Um, we'll see that the atmosphere that he created not only allows us to live and breathe, but it allows us to discover things. It allows us to get beyond our own planet and begin to discover. Uh, third day, he made the land and seas along with plants and trees. Uh, day four, he called the sun, moon, and stars into existence. The power there, it's amazing. Just Calls it into existence. These would mark the seasons, the days and the years. These would give ebb and flow to our lives. Uh, on the fifth day, God created sea creatures, fish and birds. And on day six, he made all sorts of animals, small, large and wild. That's what you read. You can read the, the, the passage there in Genesis 1. Um, really really uh, amazing what God's done in creating the, the world that he's made. And seeing what God has made, we, we get a sense of who he is by getting close to the creation that exists. Seeing what he made, like going to uh, a natural wonder, you know, like the Grand Canyon, stirs something deep in our soul. And there are actually a couple guys who've done an interesting study on this. Time Magazine reported on the study. Uh, it was done by Professor of Psychology Pierre Carlo 
uh, Valdesolo. I love that name. I'm not sure I'm saying it right, but I love that Pier Carlo. I think that's cool. And I'm sure I'm butchering it, but it's a cool name nonetheless. Um, from Claremont McKenna College and a psychologist, Jesse Graham, from University of Southern California. They did a study. Here's a headline from the Time Magazine article. I don't know if it's been up there. Uh, why there are no atheists at the Grand Canyon. All it takes is a little awe to make you feel religious. Interesting study that they did. Uh, they did five separate studies to see how eliciting feelings of awe would affect a person's sense of spirituality. And they showed some of the participants news clips of nature and creation and things, and others movie clips from the documentary Planet Earth. Uh, and in, in that, obviously, there's animals and nature, including mountains, canyons, uh, outer space. And the participants were given a series of questions to answer after the study. And uh, one focus of the questions was, to what extent did you experience awe while watching the clip? And then to follow up on that, they were asked whether or not they, they sensed that uh, what they see and experience in the universe is the result of uh, a plan that's unfolding by uh, either God or some other non-human entity. In other words, do you, do you sense design in, in what you see? And their conclusion, among others, was that awe makes people want to see events as a result of design. Really interesting study because this is, this is what you sense when you... When you go, I remember taking a trip to the Grand Canyon and I thought, well, you know, it's an hour drive off the freeway or off the highway and we'll just zip there, stop for five, ten minutes and then leave. And we showed up at the edge of the Grand Canyon and it, it was awesome, really. I, it just drew me and my family in. It was awe-inspiring. And that's, that's truly, we use that word, we overuse it, but that's really what it does. And this, this sense of awe is something God, God put in us. And he put it in us to draw him to himself as we get immersed in the creation that exists and what he's made. As we experience the awesomeness of the world that God has created for us, we're inclined to believe that he exists and we're drawn to him. This is what the Bible talks about in drawing us to him. Now, back to day six of creation. On day six, God made human beings. He made uh, the first man and the first woman. And I want to read through this whole passage to see what he did there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. In other words, let them manage. They're to subdue it, to bring it under control. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The, the, the idea is, this world was made for you and I. He, he made it for us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with the seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, he saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Do you, do you see what God did in creating this world? He made it for us. His heart, you, you see the grace of God in creation in making it for us to enjoy. And reading the account of creation, you get this overwhelming sense that people are the crown of God's creation on earth. And that's, that's what you find in the rest of Scripture. We're the crown. It was, it's, it's the grace of God that allows us to live, that made life possible. In verse 31, you get the sense that God was delighted by this. He, he viewed everything he had made and it was very good. This is something God delighted in and he wants us to delight in his provision as well. He wants us to see it for what it really is. God has a heart to bless. He has a heart to provide uh, what he's provided here on earth for, his, for our enjoyment. And it's easy to miss the grace of God in creation itself. Very easy. We're born, we start breathing without being aware uh, so much of our existence. Uh, and over the first few years, we kind of grow into consciousness. We become more aware of ourselves and others in life. But it's easy to take life on earth for granted since we sort of wake up here. Uh, God puts something in our heart then that draws us to himself. It, it, it whispers to us that there's more to life than just this earth. What's interesting is that scientists are finding out that the earth is unique. Um, they've been seeking to discover uh, other planets where life could exist. And through the window of our atmosphere, they've been able to look and search and, and discover things. And what they're finding is it is very rare to have a planet, planet like Earth where life itself can exist. I'd like you to uh, watch a video from uh, a DVD called The Case for a Creator. And it chronicles the, the journey of Lee Strobel, who was an atheist. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, an atheist, his wife had come to Christ, and so he began to investigate Christianity himself uh, with, a, with a desire to disprove it. And what happened is he, in his investigation, determined that Christianity is true, and he gave his life to follow Christ. And it's the, the book that we have that's a giveaway for uh, first-time guests is The Case for Christmas. He wrote that as well. But he has a series of books where he shares his investigation with others. And this, this video shows one of the things that convinced him. He'll be talking at the beginning of the video. But it's one of the things that convinced him uh, that 
God exists is, is the fact that uh, this planet is so unique and that it can, can contain the life that we live and enjoy. Let's watch this. Strobel's journey through a universe finely tuned for life inevitably led him home to the blue jewel of our solar system, the planet Earth. There he encountered another array of critically balanced conditions essential to human existence. When I was an atheist, I saw planet Earth as being one of probably billions of planets just like it all over the universe. I saw our sun as being an average, undistinguished type of a sun. I figured as I looked up at the stars at night that there must be millions and millions of advanced civilizations out there. I just thought there was an ordinariness to our situation. This line of reasoning was totally consistent with my atheistic worldview. But what I learned later is that it's not consistent with what science is revealing about the Earth. Strobel's investigation caused him to consider the many conditions necessary for a life-sustaining planet. In the process, he was introduced to the science of astrobiology and astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez. I'm an astrobiologist, and what motivates me is just to examine the conditions necessary for life and look elsewhere in the universe and see if those conditions are met anywhere else. And the answer could be yes, and the answer could be no, and either answer is interesting. For more than a decade, Guillermo Gonzalez has researched the characteristics of a planet required to support complex life. Estimates vary, but a current list of these factors would number at least 20 and include an oxygen-rich atmosphere, liquid water and large continental land masses, a home star of the right temperature and mass, an orbital path that is neither too far nor too close to the home star, a moon large enough to stabilize the tilt of the planet's axis and the movement of its tides, a magnetic field strong enough to deflect the sun's radiation, and a position in the relatively narrow habitable region of a spiral galaxy. All these factors have to be met at one place and time in the galaxy if you're going to have a planet as habitable as the Earth, which you need for complex and even technological life. Theorists have attempted to calculate the odds of all the necessary factors for life appearing at the same time on the same planet. A conservative estimate is one chance in 10 to the negative 15th, or one one-thousandth of one one-trillionth. On those terms, even when compared to the billions of suns and possible planets in our Milky Way galaxy, the probability of even a single habitable world appears unlikely. There are many probabilistic resources in the galaxy, but on the other side of the coin are all these factors that you need you have to get just right in order to have just one habitable planet like the Earth. And that leads me to conclude that, yes, we're rare in the galaxy. wanted to show that um, just because it, it explains some things that would take me a while to explain. We, it's, it's interesting. did a, a message series several years back called Origins, and we were looking at 
creation and the case for a creator. And um, I was describing where the earth is and the universe and in the galaxy and uh, came down. A friend of mine was there. He's a scientist at JPL. He's a rocket. He's actually a rocket scientist. I, I have a friend who's a rocket scientist. And um, he came up afterwards. He, he guides the Cassini uh, satellite around Saturn tries to make sure it doesn't run into asteroids and stuff. But he said, you know, you're right. It's exactly in the right place. And I thought, oh my, I'm glad I was right because I wasn't anticipating talking to a group that included somebody with a map of the universe in their head. <laughs> but this stuff is true. This is this is good. And it it illuminates what God was doing in those days of creation and how much care and grace he was showing in the creation that he made. He made the, the world in a way that we could exist. And it's easy to take that for granted because we wake up here one day. We start to realize that we're breathing and living and everything we need is provided. The sense you gain from the account uh, of creation in Genesis is that God loves us human beings. And he, he wants good for us in an epic way. It's amazing what he's done. He created the universe, the galaxy, solar system, uh, so that our life could exist. And also that we could discover him. I'd like you to look at a couple more minutes of this just so you could see something else about the galaxy that he created. Um, you can get the DVD for about 10 bucks on Amazon. You can see the other stuff. Very, very interesting. Case for a Creator uh, by Lee Strobel. But here's another clip that shows something else about the way he made the earth, where he put it in the galaxy and in the universe that, that's, that's fascinating to me. Let's watch this. Gonzalez's study of the earth's habitability led him and colleague Jay Richards to expand the scope of their research. They began to examine how a life-sustaining planet like Earth may also give its human inhabitants access to the mysteries of the universe. I don't think there has ever been a time in the history of the human race in which at least some people haven't contemplated these questions. We ask, why can we see distant galaxies millions of light years away in the universe? Why can we postulate what's going on inside atoms or inside black holes? Why are we able to discover things about the universe, to answer questions about its age? For most scientific discoveries that we're able to make, these sorts of things can't be explained in terms of the survival of the fittest of our distant ancestors. Not only our ability to do science, uh, but the openness of the natural world to science just completely outstrips the sort of reductionist and Darwinian explanations that we're used to. In response to this evidence, Richards and Gonzalez have argued that our ability to make scientific discoveries is no fluke or accident. Instead, it points to an underlying purpose behind the universe. It is actually designed for discovery. Guillermo Gonzalez and I spent several years pursuing a hypothesis that those rare things that life needs in a planetary environment, those things that make a planet habitable, also set up the best set of conditions overall for scientific discovery. There are many examples of this correlation, including our planet's oxygen-rich atmosphere, both a critical requirement for our survival 
and a transparent window that allows us to explore the distant universe. The Earth's precise distance from the Sun and the size of its moon and home star. These factors not only control our planet's temperature, axial tilt, and the movement of its tides, they also ensure perfect solar eclipses, phenomena that have provided scientists with invaluable data about the composition of stars and the properties of light. And our location in the Milky Way. The Earth is positioned between two spiral arms within a relatively small region where life is possible. As a result, we enjoy an excellent platform for clear, unimpeded views of our galaxy and the rest of the cosmos. I think God intentionally created a habitat for us that allows us to see him through the creation that he has left behind. And this habitat is conducive for us to do scientific research. It didn't have to be that way, but it is. Why? Because I believe that by doing science, we find God. I don't know about you, but that takes me back to science class, that music, the way the it's laid out. I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm back in another world again. <laughs> but what you, what you see is that God made sure that we have the ability to understand the way that atoms are put together, the black holes and what they're all about, how they operate, what's going on there, uh, so that we could search, so that we could find. This, this is all wrapped up in that mandate we read, Genesis 1, 27-28. Uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's this sense of get out there and explore. He actually put us in the right place so that we could go beyond our planet and explore what's out there in the galaxy and then on into the universe. There's a great deal of significance for us in, in this fact. Purpose and significance. He gave us the planet to manage. Uh, we, we are the crown of God's creation. Creation is a story of God's grace. We miss it often. But it's a story of His grace. As you go on uh, in Genesis, Genesis 1 talks about creation. Genesis 2 explains uh, a little more. It tells in Genesis 2 that uh, he, gave, uh, he planted a garden. He created a garden for the first man and woman to live in and care for. And it describes the the beauty of the garden, how it was watered and taken care of. In Genesis 2, you also see a description of God's intention for creating male and female. It, it was not good for man to be alone, but he created a companion or a helper that was just right for him, that fit uh, perfectly with him. Uh, complementary opposites is the sense you get in Scripture. Uh, that's more evidence of the grace of God. He, he wanted us to experience the joy of relationships, and he, he wanted a bunch of human beings. And so he made man and woman, and that's why he did. And then Genesis 2.25 wraps up by saying, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let that soak in a little bit. There, there is a sense of innocence and rightness in this statement. They were, they were naked and not ashamed. The epic sense of Genesis 1 takes a horrible turn in Genesis 3. 
It tells the story of a tragic decision that brought trouble to paradise. Uh, God made us all with the freedom to obey Him or not to obey Him. We can rebel against Him. Uh, This is the only way that He could have genuine, real relationships with people. Is that we could either love Him back or rebel against Him. Genesis 2 explains that uh, there was a tree uh, whose fruit was forbidden for the first man and woman to eat, and they were enticed to eat the fruit. Uh, it was it's said that it was an apple. That's not described in Scripture. It doesn't say whether it was an apple or not, but they were enticed to eat this fruit by our enemy, Satan, uh, who took the form of a serpent. And this decision to disobey God by eating from the, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil severed their relationship with God. It cut them off from knowing God personally. Till this time, they had walked freely and talked freely with God, uh, but no longer. They were separated from Him. And after their rebellion, it says that the man and the woman ran from God and hid themselves from His presence. They, they were now ashamed. The innocence is gone. Listen to Genesis 3.10. And he said, I heard the sound of you. This, this is uh, Adam talking to God. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Wasn't afraid before the decision to disobey. There was no shame. There was no reason to hide yourself from God before he made that choice. But once the choice was made, the innocence is gone and the shame begins to impact their their experience in this world. In his response to the rebellion of Adam and Eve, once again, the grace of God takes center stage. In in tempting us and succeeding, Satan uh, gained power in our world and because God had made us managers and we sort of somehow negotiated, he negotiated uh, the ability to influence this world. Uh, So, to redeem and restore us in our world, God promises to conquer Satan. That was something that needed to be done. Who has become a very personal enemy of ours. He and his uh, legion. Genesis 3.15, in speaking to our enemy, is something God did to begin to redeem and restore the world. I will put enmity, speaking to the servant, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he's referring to the offspring of a woman who will defeat Satan, our spiritual enemy. This was the first prophecy of Jesus Christ coming into the world. It's the first prophecy that a Savior would be born by a woman and bring defeat to the enemy and to the enemy of death that we now experience because of our choice. Every one of us has stamped our approval on the choice that first man and woman made to disobey God. But what God did is a very gracious thing. He sent Jesus Christ to deal a fatal blow to the enemy at the cross. While the enemy will only bruise Christ's heel, that was a fatal blow that Jesus 
dealt to him by dying and then resurrecting. Now we can experience the resurrection through him. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this, a later portion of the Bible. It says, For in Adam all died, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if you turn from going your own way and from your rebellion and decide to live life God's way, you experience life. You're made alive through the power of what Christ did in the resurrection. In this moment of time, when the first man and first woman disobeyed God, God could have wiped them out and started with a clean slate. But He chose to graciously provide a way to redemption, a way to redeem, to buy us back, to to bring us back to Him. If He had wiped the first man and first woman out, we wouldn't be here. Somebody else would, possibly, if God decided to try again. Because we're all wrapped up in the seed of that first woman. We're, we're all there. We, it, it's, he was waiting. He was being patient and gracious so that we could come to know Him. We could be born and experience life and come to know Him as well. So He graciously provided a way uh, to overcome this rebellion and a way to be redeemed. He covered our shame. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covered their shame and He covers our shame through Jesus Christ. In the consequences that God gave for our rebellion, there's more evidence of His grace. And I want to wrap up the message today by looking at this. God surprises us with an unexpected display of grace. And we wouldn't always filter it this way or understand it. But when a child disobeys, a parent has several options. They can attempt to completely control their child To ensure proper behavior, you can attempt to. It's very difficult. You have to give your life to that. (laughs) But you can try. Um, I believe God had the power to do that, though, in His response. Uh, uh, Parents can remove the privileges altogether just to punish them. They're locked in a cell of the house or something. Or you can create consequences out of love that could lead them to the right way of thinking and living. And in His grace... The Lord God gives consequences so that we experience God's grace in our pain. This this is what he was doing. God brings consequences in the form of a curse for the woman and the man uh, for their part of the rebellion. For the woman, the curse is related to childbearing. There will be pain. And then it's related to their relationships, to their relationship with their husband in particular. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. The word desire means that you'll want to control him. And guys, just they're just uncontrollable in a certain way. But that's, that's part of the curse, this friction that exists in marriages and in relationships in general. And then the curse for the man is related to work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So now work is going to be work. Work was probably great before this, but now work is like, oh, i got to go to work. This is such a pain. So anyway, that's the curse. The very things that God gave us out of His grace for delight and fulfillment, relationships and responsibility in the world, are now a source of pain. That's the consequence. 
Hebrews is a book in the New Testament that looks back at the Old Testament and helps us look at it through the lens uh, of more understanding to help us see God's work more clearly and what he was doing. And this passage helps us see the reason for these consequences. They are the same as the discipline of a loving father. Look at Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God, the Father, wants these frustrations to lead us to the answer in him. The only one who has the answer. So he wires frustration into our lives so that we'll be drawn back to Him. Pain entered the world through our rebellion and it brought shame. Jesus died on the cross to cover our shame. And the consequences and the curse are given to draw us back to the ultimate answer in Jesus Christ. Because God is gracious, He uses the pain to help us. There's an intersection that we all come to when we're dealing with pain and frustration in life. One direction is to resent God for allowing it to be there, and we miss His grace when we do this. This decision takes place in a deep place in our heart of hearts and our soul, and it dramatically affects the outcome of our story. If we resent God for allowing the pain and run from Him and try to dole the pain on our own efforts, then the life that flows is less than God intended. Another direction is to turn to God in gratitude. Just to, to turn to Him and accept what He's doing and what He wants to do through the pain, through the consequences, through the frustration. Realizing that He wants the best for us. And we learn to appreciate the pain and the frustrations because God's using them as we cooperate with Him to grow us. And to train us to be the kind of people he intended in the first place. Hebrews 12.11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is how it is in our response to any kind of authority, our boss, our parent, whatever it is. We can accept consequences and soften our heart, or we can reject harden our heart against the consequences. And this determines whether or not it will be useful to us what we experience. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. This is the way life flows now in our world that exists. In the consequences to the rebellion of the first man and the first woman uh, on which we placed our stamp of approval we see the grace of God. If you're frustrated with a relationship right now, God wants you to turn to Him and ask for help. Cooperate with Him. Let Him show you what there is in you that needs to change. Let Him show you the way of life through the discipline, through the consequence that you're experiencing. If you're beside yourself because of some problems at work right now, go to God. He cares. He wants to help. He, he wants the struggle to lead you back to Him. The right response to God's grace is always gratitude. And we see His grace in creation in an epic way. He created this world so we could enjoy it. So we could, we could 
experience life and actually discover him. And he gave the consequences to the rebellion of the first man and woman with a heart to bring us back to himself, to lead us to him, the only answer in those things. I'd like to wrap up the message by asking you, if you would, to think through your next steps. If you'd take out the connection card that's in your program, that'd be great. There are some suggested steps that you could take on the back of uh, that card. And as the band comes up to get ready to lead us in some more singing, uh, we can be completing uh, these next steps. But there are just two today. Uh, The first step would be to choose gratitude toward God by giving thanks every day this week, all day. So just whenever you think about it, start in the morning. Thank you, God, for life. Thank God for specific things. Thank Him as you go through the day for what He's doing, how He's helping, what He's leading you through. Thank Him for the frustrations that can draw you into His presence. Um, Nobody asks for frustration. Nobody asks for pain. But in the middle of it, you can learn to be grateful for what God's doing through it. And then secondly, for the first time, I will trust Jesus as my Savior and follow Him as Lord. If you've never decided to turn from going your own way, to give your life to Christ as Lord and boss, uh, that's the answer that God's provided. And if you'd like to make that decision, we really want to encourage you in doing that. Would you pray with me? Father, we... Thank you for the truth we see in Scripture and how much guidance and help it gives. And we, we ask, I ask God, that you would help us all as you've laid on our hearts uh, the, the truths of this story, as you've shown us things, as you've spoken to us. Help us to respond by doing what you've told us to do, God. We ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.